0: Welcome to the History of Japan Podcast, Episode 29, The Great Saigo, Part 2. Last week we talked about the life and experiences of Saigo Takamori, his rapid rise to prominence during the overthrow of the Tokugawa, and his equally meteoric fall over the controversy surrounding a potential invasion of Korea. This week we're going to talk about the final act of his life, his death, and his legacy in modern Japan. Saigo Takamori left Tokyo and the government in 1874, and returned to his native Kagoshima as a private citizen. Once there, he ostensibly retired from public life, and spent most of his days hunting in the area around the city. In fact, the most iconic image of him and the one memorialized in his statue at Ueno Park in Tokyo is of him dressed in a light summer kimono with his hunting dogs. It's taken from this point in his life. However, he was not entirely apolitical, if indeed a man in his position ever really could be. His passion for education led him to open a series of private schools, modeled on the old hanko, the domain academies for samurai, he had attended as a child. His schools emphasized strict military discipline as well as scholarship. The curriculum was designed in self-conscious contrast with the nascent public school system, which was focused entirely on western models of education. Saigo schools did not ignore Western ideas, for example, Western military science was a core component of the curriculum, but the spirit of the training and the intellectual atmosphere was entirely traditional. The schools attracted large numbers of young samurai. Many, particularly in militant domains like Satsuma, felt alienated by the government they had helped create, which was now going well beyond imperial restoration, the goal for which they had fought, and into the realm of open westernization. As a result, there was a great deal of anti-government feeling going around in these schools. The schools, 132 branches in total, were supported by the governor of Satsuma, who is an extremely conservative samurai. The governor appointed disciples of Saigo to key branches throughout the local government. In light of later events, some have suggested Saigo was trying to build an army using his schools, but that's a little disingenuous. For one, he never advocated military action against the government through the schools. And in addition, private military schools were very much a thing at this point, and we even have them in the United States to this day, so what he was doing was hardly unusual. Intentional or not, though, Saigo's schools provided a meeting point for hot-headed anti-government malcontents to come together, and the result was not exactly surprising. Eventually, many of the students began to come together, to plot anti-government action. They were spurred by samurai revolts occurring in Kyushu and western Honshu. Most notably, many of the domains involved in establishing the new government, including Hizen and Choshu domains, experienced revolts aimed at toppling this new government during the mid-1870s. Many of these rebellions were over the same issues that were brewing popular discontent among Saigo's loyalists the feeling that the government had gone too far in the project of westernization, particularly when it came to stripping away the social privileges previously enjoyed by the samurai class. By late 1876, revolts were either occurring or had occurred and then been suppressed in Saga, the area around Hizen, as well as in Kumoto and Fukuoka and Kyushu, and in Hagi, the capital of Choshu in Western Honshu. The leaders of these rebellions reached out to Saigo and asked for his support, which his students asked him to give. But unusual for the very decisive man, he refused to respond. By early November 1876, the rebels had been crushed. Many of their leaders, it was felt, had not been given due reverence after their defeat. More often than not, they were simply executed rather than being allowed to commit suicide, and their heads displayed dishonorably as trophies many of the samurai in Saigo's domain of Satsuma took this as an insult and simply became further incensed with the government. At this point, the government turned its attention to Satsuma. Fearing yet another revolt, the central authorities sent a group of 60 odd inspectors to Kagoshima to secure the government arsenal there and assess the situation. These men were ambushed shortly after their arrival by students of Saigo, who imprisoned them and tortured them, until the inspectors confessed to a plot to assassinate Saigo. The news was then widely distributed, forming a basis of support for a revolt in order to protect Saigo from the government interlopers. The government responded by sending warships to Kagoshima Bay to secure the arsenal and punish the perpetrators. This, combined with the recently announced final abolition of stipends for the samurai class, pushed the conflict into open rebellion. Saigo's students began attacking government arsenals and seizing the weapons contained therein. At this point, Saigo finally made up his mind to join the rebellion. Upon hearing of the students' actions, he responded with a Japanese phrase, Shichatta, which can be translated a variety of ways. More formally, it can be read something like, It is done, or the vaguely movie-trailer-esque, It has begun. It could be translated as something closer to, well, shit. Then he went back home, packed his things, and went off to lead a rebellion. Saigo framed the revolt as being against the corruption of the government. He never clarified the kind of corruption, or whether he was referring to the more traditional concept of corruption or the corrupt ideals of westernization. For his rebellion, he adopted the slogan Shinsei Kotoku," a new government of great virtue. He also pointedly never used the phrase revolt, or said he was revolting, instead saying that his army of several thousand was there to protect him as he went to Tokyo to demand answers from the government. He didn't have to go very far to get the answer, though. Upon receiving word of the revolt, the central government declared Saigo an enemy of the imperial court, and the army he had helped to form, the new imperial Japanese army, was sent to stop him. Pointedly, troops from outside Kyushu were used, out of fear that native troops would probably defect if confronted with the prospect of fighting Saigo. Saigo never really established what he would do if he actually made it to Tokyo. That lack of clarity lends some credence to the idea that he had not planned this revolt and had felt forced into it as part of a fait accompli. Saigo's army reached its first serious obstacle when it arrived in Kumamoto in February 1877. The garrison in Kumamoto Castle refused to surrender to him, and Saigo made his first and most serious strategic mistake by besieging the castle. Saigo was apparently afraid that leaving the garrison behind meant his supply lines would be cut once he left, but his troops were not prepared for a siege and could not take the castle. Meanwhile, the delay involved in besieging the castle gave the government time to mobilize forces against him. The garrison in the castle was able to hold out until a relief force arrived and put Saigo's army to flight, dealing him his first major defeat. The imperial forces, led by the young head of the imperial Japanese army, Yamagata Aritomo, attempted to expand upon this victory with an assault on Tawarazuka, one of the major passes into Kagoshima. Saigo counterattacked, and the resulting battle was incredibly bloody. From March 4th to March 19th, the two sides fought in a bloody struggle that saw around 4,000 men die on each side, more men total than during the entirety of the Boshin War to overthrow the Shogunate. In the end, though, Saigo's troops were outnumbered and outgunned, and most importantly, they were running out of bullets. Speaking of which, it's important to note that despite what some Tom Cruise movies may have told you, Saigo's troops were not fighting in traditional armor with swords and bows. Every image of him during this campaign shows him in a Western military uniform, modeled after the one he wore in the Boshin War and of French design, and using Western weapons. It was only after they ran out of bullets that Saigo's men switched to swords. Back in Kagoshima, meanwhile, Saigo's students had set up something of a Separatist government, complete with its own currency and banking system, notably using a Western model for the financial system. This new Kagoshima government then attempted to reach out to potential allies, both in other parts of Japan and among the foreign powers. However, none of them wanted anything to do with the rebellion. Most other samurai who were interested in rebellion had already done so and had been crushed by the imperial army, and the foreign powers perceived the entire issue as an internal matter and one they were not prepared to involve themselves in. On the evening of March 20th, Saigo, knowing he was beaten, began to fall back. For the next three months, he was slowly pushed back by the growing number of Imperial troops. By August, he had only 3,000 men left, and was trapped at a place called Enodake, with almost no Western weaponry left to him. Yamagata Aritomo, refusing to let Saigo escape, sent in 21,000 men to finish the job. Most of Saigo's followers were captured or committed suicide. Saigo himself escaped with a small core of followers and retreated back to Kagoshima, where he prepared for a last stand. On September 1st, he and his followers set up at a place called Shiroyama, and awaited the final attack. Yamagata, refusing to leave anything to chance, despite having 30,000 troops with which to defeat Saigo's mere 500 bombarded Saigo's position with artillery for several days, and set up a series of trenches around Shiroyama to prevent another daring escape. On the evening of September 23rd, Saigo offered his remaining followers a chance to surrender. With the ones who remained, he spent the night drinking and writing poetry. The next morning, they took up their swords and charged the imperial lines. After several hours of intense fighting, most of Saigo's followers were dead. Saigo, leading a core group of around 40, was hit by rifle fire. According to legend, he was carried away by a lieutenant who, after listening to an extremely poetic soliloquy about the nature of death, assisted him in committing seppuku by removing his head and then hiding it. Traditionally, you see, in Japanese warfare, samurai removed the heads of defeated opponents and displayed them to their lords as proof of their victory and the humiliation of their opponent. The hiding of Saigo's head was designed to prevent anyone from getting credit for killing him and from having the head displayed as a trophy in the traditional manner. This, in turn, led to the no-doubt extremely macabre scene of army troops scouring Shiroyama for the buried head in the aftermath of the battle. And, of course, the fact the Imperial Army wanted the head so badly makes you wonder just how modern it really was. After all, this is a samurai tradition, not a Western one. Incidentally, an autopsy of Saigo's body after the fact—sounds the head, of course—revealed several probably fatal gunshot wounds, so he almost certainly did not commit suicide, and his head was probably removed after he was already dead. But of course, that doesn't make for anywhere near as good of a story. Saigo's popularity did not end with his death, however. He remained a hugely popular figure, as illustrated by an Osaka newspaper which carried news of his death, accompanied by an image of him ascending to heaven, to become a god of war. Listeners of the China History Podcast will probably note the similarity between this and the story of Guan Yu, he of the infamous Romance of the Three Kingdoms period. Guan Yu, knowing he was going to be ambushed, rode out anyway to face his death bravely, and as a result eventually, supposedly, ascended to heaven and became a god of war. Saigo, in this view, was simply the modern incarnation of Guan Yu's indomitable spirit. Saigo's status as a martyr of traditional Japanese culture made him incredibly popular. A comet blazing through the stars around the time of his death was referred to popularly as Saigo's Comet, and its appearance was seen as a symbol of his apotheosis into a god. Only a few years later, the government would begin to move away from the policies of total westernization in the 1880s. The intellectual climate began to shift in favor of preserving more traditionally Japanese aspects of culture. In this light, ten years after killing him, the government actually rehabilitated Saigo, who became a symbol of Japanese honor and loyalty unto death. The government constructed a statue of him in Ueno, and another outside Kumamoto Castle and posthumously restored all of his titles and fame. This fact no doubt rankled his younger brother, Saigo Tsugumichi, who had accompanied Saigo on many of his early campaigns but had stayed loyal in 1876, and as a result, drifted into forgotten obscurity. Saigo remains an immensely popular figure in Japan to this day, having appeared in Japan on everything from World War II propaganda posters, as a paragon of Japanese virtue, two, and I swear to god I am not making this up, extremely bizarre anime about him being resurrected as a taxi driver. What, then, is the legacy of Saigo Takamori? Why does he endure to this day as an icon? Well, there are a few reasons. One of them, and probably the most important, is that unlike many of his contemporaries, for example, the head of the Imperial Army Yamagata Aritomo, Ito Hirobumi, the framer of the new constitution, or his own brother Tsugumichi, he left the government and died before being tainted by the political compromises which lie at the heart of governing. As any starry-eyed idealist turned political cynic will tell you, it's much easier to talk about change than it is to actually go to the center of power and effect it. In the end, despite high-minded ideals, the day-to-day aspect of governing is more often than not compromise on values and while it gets things done, it's not exactly a stirring thing to behold. Saigo, on the other hand, was never tainted by compromise. He could avoid being associated with the unpleasant realities of the transformation of Japan from feudal state into modern nation state. In addition, somewhat more cynically, being dead, Saigo could be held up as an example of pretty much anything and could not contradict it, since he was in fact dead. This would make him an exceptionally useful symbol to mobilize the populace with. There is also a somewhat uniquely Japanese, though not entirely uniquely Japanese, tradition of glorifying those who are defeated fighting for a lost cause. What one specialist on Japan, a man named Ian Morris, referred to as, quote, nostalgia for the loser. For example, the War of the Taira Clan against the Minamoto in the 12th century Note, of course, that our best record of that war is named for the loser and not the winner. Or the story of Kusunoki Masahige and the other loyalists to Emperor Go-Daigo against Ashikaga Taboriji, or the holdouts of the Tokugawa against the Imperial forces, or the Japanese army holding out against the Allies, could all be held up as examples of this trope from one point or another. The tendency to valorize defeat has some pretty complex social roots, but the core of it comes from the perceived essence of samurai morality. That upholding what one personally believes through dying for that belief is an extremely noble idea. You see this a lot in Edo period literature. There are stories, for example, of retainers who killed themselves to protest a particular policy their lords were undertaking in order to prove their sincere, yet loyal, opposition. Saigo is, in this light, someone who did just that on a grand scale. He committed suicide in an extremely public way by leading an army against impossible odds, and as a result proved his sincere opposition to the westernizing policies of the central government. Of course, we have to be careful when making statements like this. It's entirely possible to read too much into something after the fact. And rather than making some grand gesture... Saigo could, of course, simply have been trapped by his circumstances into doing something he himself did not really support. In a lot of ways, Saigo's revolt also served as a rallying cry for a growing intellectual movement in Meiji society. Many intellectuals were not happy with the degree to which total westernization was being pushed on society, and from the 1870s into the 1880s, a growing number sought to preserve a unique sense of japanese against what they saw as over-Westernization. Saigo became a symbol for a lot of these people. He was a hero who had fought to preserve what was uniquely Japanese. That tension between Western values and the perceived traditional Japanese values remains very strong to this day. Exactly how Westernized Japan can become without no longer being Japan anymore remains a somewhat loaded intellectual issue that, of course, revolves a lot on how you define Japan, or for that matter, how you define westernization. The intellectual issues at the heart of Saigo's revolt against the government remain very much unsolved to this day, and the tension between modernization and traditional values still exists in a very strong way in Japanese society. In the end, to my mind at least, Saigo is still popular because the issues that sent him out on his final grand quest are still important. He remains in the public consciousness because the ideals for which he died remain in the public consciousness. And as long as that stays the case, Saigo Takamori will be seen as one of the most important figures in modern Japanese history. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.